This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Uh, we have a very distinguished guest tonight uh, for his new book, There Will Be No Miracles Here. Uh, Casey Gerald grew up in Oak Cliff, Texas, went to Yale, where he majored in political science and played varsity football. And after receiving an MBA from Harvard Business School, he co-founded MBAs Across America. He's been featured on MSNBC at uh, the Ted Foundation and South by Southwest, on the cover of Fast Company and in the New York Times, Financial Times, and The Guardian, among many others. It's quite a resume already, and it's only building. But as the title of his memoir suggests, there will be no miracles here. Uh, he sees the importance of, of turning traditional notions of what the American dream is on its head. Uh, the book offers a glimpse into what Gerald's ascension to collegiate fame and wealth uh, looks like as he was rec uh, recruited to play football for Yale and made his way from there to a job on Wall Street. But what's also captured so profoundly in his writing is how this dramatic change in his circumstances uh, lends him unique insight into the, the institutional structure of success and how one person's rise above struggle may simultaneously keep others down. Uh, joining him in conversation tonight is his friend, Dr. Matthew D. Morrison, who's the assistant professor in the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music uh, at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts, and formerly the editor-in-chief of the music journal uh, Current Musicology. He's currently working on his own book as well. It's called Black Sound, Making Race and Identity in American Popular Music. So with that, please give them a warm welcome here to Politics and Prose. Absolute best friend in the world, and I mean that. And it's very hard to come by friends these days. Uh, and um, and so I'm very grateful for Matthew to be here. Just as a ground rule, oh, I didn't. There's a whole thing happening over here. I was like, <laughs> sorry. Hey, um, just as a ground rule, uh, I'd like these to be like this to be uh, not a book event, but a human event. Uh, we really uh, have no idea uh, what the person next to us has gone through this week, today, um, past five minutes. So if you see somebody, smile at them. If you see somebody sitting alone, you know, say hello. Um, let's hopefully leave this place better than we arrived. Um, and, uh, and I need your help to do that. Um, so I'm going to read a little piece of something real quick. Uh, there are many miracles in this book. Uh, it's a very pro-miracle book, uh, and uh, <laughs> which you'll see if you start reading, uh, which would require you to first purchase. Um, but there are two miracles. The first miracle, perhaps, is that it was written at all because I didn't start reading until I was tw almost 23 years old. Not that I couldn't read, but I didn't. Um, and I happened to, as Mr. Searcy did here, get through four years at Yale without reading. Will read, but I did not. Um, the second miracle, and you all will get this since you're in this town, is that it is an honest book 
uh, I hope, written by someone who planned to be president. Uh, you read all these books by people who, who want to run for office, and you read in the, you can almost smell it on the first page. When are they running for something? Well, I'm not running for anything, but I did plan to at one point, and I want to read something from the book about my ambition. I was on uh, uh, Philadelphia Public Radio the other day, and the woman said, now, in the book you write about wanting to be governor of Texas, I said, no, Marty, I want to be president of the United States. Don't lower my ambition. Um, so, get this out of my face. It took me just a little while to discover why anyone who's ever wanted to keep the people deaf, dumb, and blind kept them first and most importantly from the written word, my Lord. I soon found my first poet, Walt Whitman, because of that Levi's commercial with those beautiful young people kissing and wrestling and switching jeans in the dressing room and standing, smiling in rainstorms and running through fields with sticks and flags and jumping off little statues in the daytime and doing cartwheels in the night while fireworks explode overhead and some man with a reedy voice recites, pioneers, oh pioneers, in the background. I found my first philosophers, Camus and Emerson, though it was hard at first to remember the difference between the existentialist and the transcendentalist. Since then, I've learned that Camus did not consider himself an existentialist, and Emerson, at least the Emerson I read, was very different from Thoreau, who I did not care for, if only because I don't like nature very much. So it turns out I did not fall in love with existentialism or transcendentalism, but with Camus and Emerson. Uh, that would have been helpful to know, since labels caused me so much misery at that time. I also found my first novel, Since James and the Giant Peach. This caused some trouble, too. On the Road was so original. Everything I read was original because I hadn't read nothing. And thrilling that all my fantasies of being a truck driver came back and I had to force them out of my mind again by remembering how Annie O looked at me the first time I shared my desire to live on the road. It also helped to remember that I was trying to be president and could not admit to the people that I had nothing to offer anybody except my own confusion. And this, being president, was no longer just my teammate's idea it was mine. I wanted to be president, and I was going to do whatever it took because it was worth it. The presidency would be the ultimate sign of excellence and thus the ultimate revenge. Nobody would call me by my name or any other smart-ass moniker. They would only call me Mr. President unless I told them otherwise. And in the meantime, I would be leading the world, wouldn't answer to anybody ever again, wouldn't take shit from nobody, would leave behind all my troubles and take on new troubles, nice troubles, like peace in Israel and sending people into outer space and curing disease. I would be the most loved person on the face of the planet. Hell, people I never even met would love me, would hang out of windows when I walked by, would remember the day they shook my hand. I would also be the most hated person in the world, but the people who hated me wouldn't get close to me, and so what if they did? If I died being president, ooh, I would die for big old causes. I would die for freeing slaves. I would die for investigating Fidel Castro. I would die and it would be a grand affair, and people would cry when I left for a change instead of me crying for them, because nobody leaves a man once he's president, even when he's dead. If I died as president, that would be fine. 
They wouldn't find me tied up on the floor. There will be hundreds of people around as soon as I expired and thousands more soon after that, and then they'd make me a statue. I would want one far away from Lincoln. I don't want that bastard still in my visitors. And I wouldn't want to be close to Jefferson either because I don't like the son of a bitch. I would like to be near the Washington Monument because it's tall and unadorned. And Washington was first and I would be last because if I died as president, I'd make my final order to end the country. Just shut down the whole thing. Party's over, folks. Gotta leave America. I'm dead. You're dead. It's all dead. And at the very least... Nobody, nobody will be indifferent about me. Nobody would ever forget that I existed. Nobody would forget to pick me up from school. Nobody would forget my birthday. Shit, my birthday might be a national holiday. It might be a global holiday by the time I finished helping people or at least ruling the world. But first, I had to be president, which did not seem impossible. So I stopped reading novels and started reading books that would help me with my job. And so I was glad to also find right around this time, my first bookstore. So rather than start with a whole bunch of pleasantries around how excited and uh, everything else I am to be here with my best friend discussing his book, I want to just go right uh, to this moment uh, that you ended with, right? Um, how do we get from running for president to a memoir? Also, this wasn't very long ago uh, because I was ready to be Olivia Pope, let me tell you. Uh, I was ready to be what they call a DAB, a down ass bitch, to do anything it took. <laughs> anything necessary to get this person that I believed in to be president of the United States. It was also not an unlikely possibility. If you read through the text, you see that there are so many different ways that Casey has moved through of this nation, but also we also see how that is resulting in a, in a number of uh, uh, different outcomes. So um, how do the political and the literary converge here? How do we get from presidency to a memoir? Uh, I won't act like we haven't talked about these things for 12, 13 years, right? Mm -hmm. um, we talked, you know, you've, you've talked about the various inspirations for this, thinking about uh, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, uh, how that from the very start is a political moment in literature, uh, right? And so I am just want you to uh, say a bit about uh, the how politics and, li and literature converge for you in the writing of this memoir. Mm. Uh, well, you don't know what converges until you're done with it. I think I'll go to why I started in the first place. Uh, people often ask me, they say, well, my cousin is thinking about writing a memoir. You have any advice? I say, yeah, don't do it unless your life depends on it. Uh, and that was the case for me. Uh, I uh, had achieved by my late 20s about everything a kid is supposed to achieve in America. Uh, but I was very cracked up. I wouldn't necessarily say having a nervous breakdown, but I wasn't too far off. Uh, and I was awful sad either way. And a lot of my friends were cracked up. And the world was cracked up too, obviously. This was uh, 2016. So I set out with the book initially just to kind of trace those cracks with words, you see. Um, and um, before I finished, 
uh, one of those friends, one of my closest friends from Yale, actually, who I'd helped recruit, who had gone on this sort of similar Horatio Alger journey, uh, except from St. Louis, uh, he committed suicide. And, um, and I got into the part in the material that was uh, supposed to be kind of the, okay, now the kid is gonna make it. Now he's gotten into Yale and this is all sort of the up from slavery thing. You know, now we're good to go. And I got real sad and I couldn't write for a couple of days. I just, I didn't know what was wrong. So I took a nap, uh, ate it by a little bourbon and I went to sleep and my friend came to me in a dream can y'all hear me? All right. Uh, my friend came to me in a dream, and he was sitting in a booth in a diner. And it was a crowded diner, and he leaned back, and I was standing on the other side of his booth, leaning over. And he leaned back, and he smiled. He had the most incredible smile. And he said, um, he said, you know, Casey, we did a lot of things that we wouldn't advise anybody we love to do. And then I woke up. But I knew exactly what he meant, and I knew that this book um, had to be not just a memoir, but an intervention to say and to prove that the way we are teaching, uh, the way we are teaching young people and are taught ourselves to live in this society is killing us. And I had to be very honest with that, not with the finger going out that way, but the finger starting this way. It had to be a confession, not in the Kardashian sense, but in the perhaps St. Augustine sense, you see, which is, the, I guess, the Kardashian of antiquity. Um, I had to confess, and I had to be as honest about that, that journey that we prescribed, that American dream journey. I had to be as honest about it to show that if you look at it from the right angle, a boy picking himself up by his bootstraps looks like a suicide, you see. Had to be very honest about that. But I also had to try simultaneously, and this is one of the reasons the book's so strange, it has to run on two tracks. I had to simultaneously try to imagine what it looked like to truly live. I mean, with the capital L, not just breathing, walking around, paying your mortgage, you know, uh, what it would mean to be a better person, a better friend, a better lover, what, would it, what it would mean to know God for real, not some senseless ritual. Um, I, I, I guess I wanted in a way to kind of be born again, you know, and to make a book that 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 reflected uh, all the magic strangeness of that. Um, so um, it, it was a book without any political ambition. It was a book with a very personal intention of trying to figure out how to live uh, in a world um, that is so well made for death. So the narrative of the life of Casey Gerald, an American blank. Uh, we can fill that in a number of ways, right? Um, in telling this narrative, you wrote a lot about growing pains and painful experiences, right? But yet here you are. Uh, telling this story after having written the text. Um, and I actually want to read just a very short section and ask you um, your thoughts on this here. This is, um, I'm also reading from a previous version because I've been looking at versions since the uh, proposal. Um, and so I get a bit confused on what I should actually be reading from. I should probably be reading from this book here, right? Uh, but what I'm reading from today is a previous version, but it's to still be um, along the way. And so this is coming from 
um, a sermon that Casey's father preached. Uh, so I'll just start here. Uh, the last sermon of his that I remember was preached during a night service. A word had been laid on his heart to encourage the congregation to put their tragedies into perspective and trust that God has no plan, has a plan, no matter how bad things might be. Quote, if my daughter tells me she's pregnant out of wedlock, I got to count it all to joy and give it to God. If my son becomes a homosexual, I can't do nothing about it. I got to turn it over to the Lord. Come on, saints. End quote. I don't remember what he said after this, but I can still feel the eyes of all the saints on the back of my faggot head and on my horse such as belly, even though we had not yet done what daddy said we would do. Well, that sounds very harsh when you read it. <laughs> Does it really? Maybe it's my reading. <laughs> it was like very funny when I wrote it. And then you read it, I was like, dang, I didn't mean to call my sister a whore. Jesus. Well, you know, um, it, br- it brings again, you know, you are, again, as I mentioned here, you are um, telling these experiences, these painful experiences and these growing pains that we often don't recognize as such until we might see it reflected onto us even having written the words, right? Um, but I'm wondering how your understanding and acceptance uh, and continue sort of work towards that of your own self, of your own queered self, your own black self, in a world that remains hostile towards these things, towards blackness, towards queerness, towards poorness, um, how these things have manifested, how your work towards that type of acceptance, how that has manifested in this literary work, in this narrative of Casey Gerald. Well, you know, I was very hostile to the idea of writing a kind of sociological study of what it, a sort of an abstract study of what it meant to be an oppressed gay person in America. I mean, you know, or what it meant to be an oppressed black person, or what it meant to be. I, I just have, I'm very skeptical of those things. And perhaps beyond that, I don't have the skills for it. I don't know. Um, what I tried to do was bring worthy language to the beauty and challenge of loving another boy, in my case. Um, a challenge in part because we live in a society that, that hates faggots. And I use that word intentionally, okay? Uh, and that teaches us to hate ourselves. I'll come back to why I use that intentionally if we want to in a sec. But, uh, but it's also a challenge because um, for a long time I was a coward. You see, I, uh, there's this great line in Clarice Lispector, the great Brazilian novelist, that said, uh, he wasn't innocent in the least, though he was a general victim of the world. Uh, and, and that explained me and I think a lot of people I know so well. Uh, you know, I'm very scared. If, if suffering was all it took to make saints, we'd have a much better world for sure. So I wanted to climb all the way down in the intimate human experience. Uh, not sort of stand out and say, well, you know, and then structural oppression, you know, showed up and knocked on my door and said, I will oppress you. You know, I, I was just never interested in that kind of thing. Um, and so when it comes to uh, this scene, it kind of goes to, you know, Marlon James says that, you know, this is the most uh, urgently political, most deeply personal and most er- uh, engagingly spiritual statement of our time. I mean, those three things are intimately connected because we're starting not from the ideas, but from the human experience. So when it comes to something like this, you know, I had to let go of the God that I was given to find the God that I needed. And I think so many people uh, that I grew up with and grew up around have had to do the same, whether they're queer or not queer. Um, 
But it just so happened that one of the greatest gifts in that journey for me was being homosexual because there was no reconciling it. My uncle died of AIDS when I was seven. And I remember my grandfather, his father, our pastor of our church, you know, would let him in the kitchen. And, you know, they sort of discarded this person that was supposed to be their family. And we all should have, especially if you're my age or older, should have somebody we witnessed in that plague. Um, but, you know, and so I spent so much time in my youth trying to get rid of this gift, you know, trying to ignore it, trying to, you know, throw it away. And it took such a toll that I reached a point where I didn't want to live. I didn't want to be alive. And I think a lot of queer young people get to that point where they just don't see a, right, a way around this conundrum. Well, when I got there, I said, well, I'm not going to die in this lifetime to avoid hell in the next one. Not going to mutilate myself for God's love. Uh, and initially, the stance that I took was the stance of kind of a spurned lover, you know, to hell with him. You know, I, you know he ain't nothing. I don't need him no way, you know. Um, and that lasted for a while. But then around the time of this book, I got so low and it was really I, I knew nowhere else to turn. And I, I was worried my mother suffered from mental illness and we'll get to that. Um, but I was worried that I was having my own sort of, you know, um, deal along those lines. And right around that time, almost like Saul on the road to Damascus, you know, I felt something grab me and grab, grab my hand, you know, and I called this something God. But a friend of mine sent a sermon to me not long after that. And uh, the minister said, if you want to know God, the best way to know God is to assume you know nothing about God. And, and that's uh, where I am with this spiritual question, but it also is a question of language because so much of this book and why, um, you know, it's not a linear narrative. There, there are times where, you know, there are dreams that are just transcribed in the text is because so much of the challenge of the language was how do you bring language to mystery? Uh, not ignore the fact that the mystery exists, but how do you bring Good language, new language, fresh language, honest language to the mystery of life um, or the mystery of God. And I tried to capture that um, as, as well as I could on the page, but I couldn't capture it any better on the page than I had it in my heart or in my mind. And so as much of if the book is a mess, it's because I'm a mess, not because the language has a problem. Uh, this idea of bringing worthy language, right? Uh, to the beautiful challenge of loving a boy that we see you're part of a larger uh, legacy and the most obvious being that of James Baldwin. Um, and we also talked about um, your aim or just the process of what it means to sort of capture the specificity of your own experience that you're also trying to figure out along the way, uh, while also giving voice to this larger, uh, to really a larger political voice in a lot of ways of what you feel like you were part of a community or part of certain communities uh, that bear and deserve a certain level of at least uh, presentation or representation in some way. Um, and so uh, sort of in the vein of the book, I'm going to ask sort of a question related, but also just random. Why Juneteenth as an entry point into sort of really getting into your relationship to a certain uh, to freedom uh, and, and your sexuality? 
So you have to you have to purchase and read the book to to get the Juneteenth. <laughs> no, I'll tell it. You know, I'm always struck. I mean, maybe y'all go to book events a lot. I don't go to book events. You know, I never planned to be a, a writer. I was a friend of mine is a rapper in Atlanta, and we were talking the other day, and uh, he saw some quotes from the book, and he said, "You know, yo, I don't read shit, but I kind of want to read your book," and <laughs> and. Um, and it was so indicative and, and, and really was encouraging because, you know, I said, Chris, you know, the reality is that the rappers are the most important artists working today because they're talking about real life and the writers have their heads up their ass. Uh, so, I, you know, uh, I, I always thought, I mean, I grew up a very poor person and $27 was, I mean, a fortune. So the idea that I'm going to spend $27 on a book and you can't tell me what's in it, I mean, that's just, that's just nuts. I mean, why would I do that? That's so much money. You know, so I'll tell you the whole thing. If it's a good enough book, it's still worth reading, I think. Um, so anyway, um, I somehow found a way and found an editor who would let me find a way to write in the same chapter about Juneteenth, which was the emancipation of the uh, enslaved uh, Texans, and losing my virginity. <laughs> and, and it worked, actually, I think. Um, but what I was getting to, and, and the thread that runs through the book is, you know, my, my grandmother's grandfather was born a slave in Texas. And, uh, and I used to, we, go, we used to go down to the, to the town where she was from, Pelham, Texas, which was uh, one of the first communities founded by the formerly enslaved people. And every time we go down there, she'd make us pick cotton, which, you know, now I look back and it's like, that's very problematic. But it's like, it was great. She'd be like, okay, y'all go get some bushes. And we're like, really, Granny? She's like, don't ask me again, you know. Um, and I'd say, well, dang, Granny, how did the people survive? I mean, this is crazy. This, I mean, what is this? And she said, child, don't you be walking around here talking about how bad slavery was. And I said, what? She said, everybody had a house and a job and knew what they were going to eat. She said, I was living in New York at the time. She said, now, if somebody came to New York and offered to pay your rent, you wouldn't, talk, you wouldn't be talking about you want to be free now, would you? And for a long time, I thought she was just like, you know, she she was going insane or something, you know. And then I thought more about it and I thought I tried to put myself in the shoes of her great grand of her grandfather who woke up on June 20th or June 21st or June 22nd or whatever and uh had had ripped from him the only way of living that he'd ever known, that his parents had ever known, that their parents had ever known. I mean, he had to find for himself, create for himself in very hostile conditions, completely new terms by which to live. And I think, you know, I was telling someone the other day that I think we're in the early days of a very beautiful and dangerous revolution, especially in my generation, of the terms by which we live in the world. I was just talking to a uh, a student who just finished college yesterday, and he said, man, I feel like I need to go to therapy just to recover from what I went through in college. I feel like they told me that they, they accepted me for my individuality, and then they spent four years turning me into a machine. And I talk to young people all the time who are doing that. So I think much of what this book is, and this goes back to why it has to be on two tracks, it has to both say to somebody who is in 
a system in a school in a situation that does not work but is the only one they have known that hey this thing is going to kill you brother or sister but you can't just leave them out in the cold once you say that you got to say well now it's june 26th and here's what we're going to do from now on um, so that's why um, and i think about that so much the tradition as much of this as this book is transgressive uh, narratively and politically and otherwise it does stand in a tradition that begins, I was in Baltimore for a book event a few days ago, and I was so upset about something that had happened in my hotel room or something, and I was just about to complain and send some nasty emails, and then I remembered that I was in Frederick Douglass's hometown, and I remembered that I was showing up in the world on behalf of a book that stands in a tradition that begins with Frederick Douglass that had to leave the country when he published his personal narrative because he was uh, at, at risk of being murdered just for writing it, just for knowing how to write. So um, I think in many ways, the book is just is sort of standing in this line of how exactly do we live in what seems to be an impossible situation, you see. Um, and we've been given certain prescriptions for that. I think many of those are wrong. I try to document that, what they say on Twitter, with receipts. You know, not just propaganda, but I try to give you the receipts. But I also try to say maybe there's a better way here. I'm trained to give commentary, but I am not doing that today. I'm just going to move on <laughs> to keep this uh, so that we can actually engage with these ideas here. Um, I actually want to now read a poem. Um, from your text here that you quote uh, from your high school years that you learned there um, by Edward uh, A. Guest. Uh, and so I'll just read the poem. Uh, I have to live with myself and so I want to be fit for myself to know. I want to be able, as days go by, always to look at myself straight in the eye. I don't want to stand in the setting sun and hate myself for the things I have done. Um, knowing you... Um, thinking about the process of you deciding to write this book or coming into writing this book um, and the really difficult and harrowing process it's been personally in a, in a lot of ways. Um, it resonates throughout the whole text for me, just you know, from my sort of personal relationship to it. Um, but it also, this particular uh, poem that you chose to cite here, uh, to me also carries a charge with it. Um, and within that charge is a certain sort of responsibility to uh, what, in my field, we might call a certain fidelity to the text or to the to a truth. Uh, but we also know the truth is relative to who is telling or who is receiving and who's interpreting such, right? And one of the things that I think really goes into narrating and constructing this literary work is the idea of memory. And from the very start, you know, um, I think that it's something that you have um, engaged with very uh, personally and critically. Uh, and so I'm wondering if, if you can talk about, not wondering, but I would like you to talk a bit about um, how does memory um, fall into the making of there will be no miracles here and your own understanding of yourself in relation to memory? Yeah. Uh, Tony Morrissey used to tell our students, don't write what you know because you don't know nothing. And I think a lot of people took that as a warning against personal narrative. I think it's a great invitation because what I found is that the thing perhaps we know the least about is ourselves. 
the most important fact of my life is that my mother disappeared when I was 12. She suffered from mental illness, uh, bipolar, and one day she just disappeared from a psychiatric hospital and never came home. My mother was this very magical creature. She was kind of like a mix of Blanche Dubois from A Streetcar Named Desire in the 1980s, Whitney Houston. I mean, it's like this is, really, and this is still really, a fact to I mean, today. A real, <laughs> a real star, you know. Um, and she was really, she was so strange and so fragile that uh, everybody hated her. I mean, everybody saw big problems with her because I come from this family of these strong, strong black women, you know, um, and a lot of them. And then there was my mother, this very fragile person who was so dramatic and always, you know, standing in the bathroom mirror, putting on makeup for six, seven hours a day. And then she disappeared. And for years, I knew that this happened when I was 12. And then I started writing this book. And I was procrastinating one day. And so I went and looked through some old childhood documents of mine. And I found a homework assignment from when I was 13. And my mother's signature was on it. And I said, what in the hell is this? And I, w I hoped, for reasons you will understand if you read the book, that I have forged those signatures. Um, uh, so I kept looking through the folder, and I found more documents uh, with her signature on them from that year, from me being 13. And I asked my sister in a roundabout way, because, of course, we never want to actually talk to our family members directly. We just sort of say, you know, we want the information without the conversation, you know. So I'm like, hey, was mama at your graduation? Because I kind of knew that. And she said, I don't remember. And then, so anyway, by the end of our conversation, it was clear that my mother had been around for a whole year after I had internally known with certainty that she had been gone. Initially, I was scared out of my mind. I mean, I almost wrote my editor and said, here's the money back. I mean, I sold you a bad plot. I mean, it was wrong. But then I thought, and again, it's a question of language. I thought it would be far more interesting, actually, to try to bring language to an absence of memory, you see. I mean, what if I have a line in that passage? What if to remember nothing is to remember something? It's to remember that at some point you had to forget you know, um, and so in a lot of ways, there's another sort of scene that's very important. I think it's both a trust building exercise with you as a reader, because the reality is that we encounter so many people who are so full of shit. I mean, in books, on the television, in politics, I mean, you know, we have been lied to. I was an intern at Lehman Brothers in 2008. There's a great chapter on the financial crisis in this, in this, in this, in this book. Um, we've been lied to so, 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 so much. And I thought that it would be um, a far better way to build trust with the people that I was extorting $27 from. I mean, really, you see, asking for their hard-earned money. I thought in return, I'd, I'd try to give you some trust, not by telling you how certain I was about everything, but by show, sort of showing my work showing my memory work and saying, actually, I got a big old gap on this thing that is the most important thing that ever happened to me. And it's possible that that gap says more about the reality of life than my feigned certainty might. You know? So the phrase that you'll probably uh, see most often in here is, I don't know or I'm not sure. Yeah.
I want I want to be 100% sure. I say a lot of harsh things about a lot of people, but I don't arrive at any of those things in a haphazard way. And when I get there, I want to know for sure that I'm there for real, uh, not that I think I'm there. Yeah. Uh, so as you recollect from your memory uh, to narrate this text in words, um, uh, you essentially also memorialize whoever appears in this work. Uh, and that is a, um, a great challenge for a number of reasons. And, and especially because you're writing a memoir where you are writing about most people who are here presently, who have gone on, folks who are dear to you, folks who may not be so dear but still appear, right? Um, and so I'm wondering if you can say a bit about that process of working through representation of these people mm -hmm. who appear in this work because they're human beings, as you, um, as we know, and as you've pointed out in many ways, um, but they still appear memorialized in your work. So yeah. how do you sort of work through that? And how have you worked through that in that, uh, in that process of representation? Yeah, one of the big things that the sort of meta projects of this book is to... Um, disappoint narrative expectations. Uh, Marlon James interviewed me, the great uh, novelist in New York, and he said, you know, I hate when they send me these books to blurb, you know, and I wasn't going to read yours, but then I started reading, and I realized that the, none of the sentences ended the way I thought they would end. You know, um, the narrative expectation, it's almost like I've, I, I want to put the chair of narrative expectation up for you to sit down. As soon as you sit, I just want to pull it out. And it happens, you know, there's this great little line there. That, you know, the narrative tradition of black Americans going to Paris. So there's a chapter that ends, I packed my bag for Paris. And here you go. You're ready to sit down. Oh, here we go. We got another, you know, color boy going to Paris. And then the first, the next chapter opens. I actually hated the French. <laughs> And I was on my way to Berlin, you see. Um, it's kind of just, it's almost like a magic show kind of thing. So it happens at the sentence level. It also, at, at, at more sort of structural levels, it's, it's sort of disappointing these kind of villain hero narratives that we get so often. So I'll give you two examples. Uh, there's a fantastic, well, I think it's fantastic, scene uh, in the book uh, with me and George W. Bush and this will be a very different book if I had never met George Bush. We, I was standing in a buffet line down in Dallas a couple years ago, and I had just listened to him uh, talk on a panel, and I was so apoplectic. And I was walking around the, buff, the sort of dining room after this talk, you know, talking cash money trash about George Bush. And I would go up to people, i say, can you believe he said that? Can you believe this bastard? I hate him, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I go stand in the line to get my dinner. And I'm standing, I'm still upset, and I feel a hand on my shoulder. And I turn around, and it's George Bush. <laughs> and I was raised with a fair amount of decency. So I said, good evening, Mr. President. How are you doing? Um, so I didn't want to talk to him about anything that could possibly lead us to tricky ground. So it, there happened to be some of his paintings on the wall which are actually quite good. So I said, well, Mr. President, will you walk me through your process on these paintings? <laughs> and I'll never forget, he says, you know, it's just all shapes, man. <laughs> I love that. I said, what? It's all shapes. Now listen, I'm not, you know, I went to Yale, but I never took Vincent Scully's art history class, but I thought painting was a little more than shapes. But, 
So we walk through the buffet line together, and we're talking, man. You know, we're you know, the Jeb was running so awfully for president at the time. I say, you know, what's what's happening with your brother? All this kind of stuff. So we finish in the buffet line, and we wind up. We say, okay, well, we'll stay in touch, whatever. No, no intentions to stay in touch. Turns out we were seated at the same table. <laughs> And you all live in D.C., so you might know this, but every time somebody meets a president, it's almost like they lose all the ability to speak, you know. Well, I had an advantage because I had just been in the buffet line with the man for seven minutes, so I was the only one that would talk to him at dinner. So we talked for most of the dinner about the Rangers and about, you know, I asked him what he learned as president. I mean, we had a really good chat. So afterwards, he says, say, man, I want to take you to lunch. I said, sure, I love a free meal. So we... So we wound up instead going to dinner. Anyway, I say all that to say, um, this would be a very different book if I had not spent that time with the person that I've been hating since I was 15. Because um, I could do all of the hemming and hawing and rigmarole, which I do, about hating the Iraq war and hating the all of this stuff. But then I also hit this strange sort of... Uh, inconvenient truth that I actually like this dude. I mean, it was really uncomfortable to admit that to myself. I felt, my God, am I complicit in, you know, injustice or something? But I said, wow, if that's the case for this person that I really, really objectively dislike and have deep issues with, then how much more grace do I have to give to my mother and my father and this person who you know, punch me in the face at X, Y, Z. I mean, it, it changed the standard of care for the villains in the book. Um, I was gonna tell another thing, but I actually wanna stop while it's good. Um, and I probably will just ask a couple of more questions so we can open up to um, our really wonderful um, audience here. Um, and golly. Shit, well, let's see here. Uh, so I'm trying to keep it nice in DC. Um, well, Casey, uh, well, I'm just ask this. What did you mean um, when you said that, uh, you said, I strive to win this world um, and won my own death instead? Um, you know every single line of the book because you got a photographic memory, so I have to give it context. Yeah. So. Um, the reason this thing had to be a confession, um, is there any jazz aficionados here? No, of course, you, the, the G's. You know how, George, how uh, John Coltrane talked about the making of a love supreme? And he kind of locks himself in this garage, um, first led by his wife, the brilliant Alice Coltrane, to the divine. And he locks himself up in this garage, and he sort of channels this supernatural thing for some time. And the, and the divine sort of gives him a syllabus, says, here, here, brother, play this note. Now, here's the note. And you know, who knows if Coltrane could play the notes on his own, but out comes this album that he knows he can't take full credit for. He just kind of let it go through him. And I felt that way very much about this book, especially when uh, my friend took his life. 
And when he came to me in that dream, and it was almost as if he said, all right, here, here, here's the book, man. Here's the book. And the book as a confession, because as much as I wanted to, you know, rail against the world and, and, and why the world failed my friend, I knew that I had failed my friend, too. Uh, when I was in college, I started a group called the Yale Black Men's Union. Many of our uh, members, former presidents, are here, which just shows the kind of lingering terror, I guess. <laughs> no, hopefully some love, too. Um, and, I, and I went back to the freshman induction a few years ago, and it's 18-year-old boys, 50 18-year-old boys in their first week at Yale. And... Uh, the first speaker was the first black dean in the history of Yale College, and he gets up and speaks to these 50, 18-year-old boys. And his message to them was, hey, if you're going to be a token, just be the best token you can be. <laughs> and it would have been funny if it wasn't so heartbreaking. I literally, before I came here, was just on the phone with a 23-year-old boy from Jacksonville, Arkansas, who just finished four years at Yale. And he is so spiritually damaged. Um, I was just in an event in Philadelphia last night, and a mother came up to me after the event tears in her eyes, a white woman from Pennsylvania. And she said, my daughter's a sophomore at Yale. And she couldn't even get the rest of the sentence and she just started crying. And she said, I'm so terrified about what they're going to do to my baby. I mean, you would think she had been sent to Sing Sing or something. What the... training grounds of young people are doing in this country is uh, so damaging to so many young people. And I had taken part in that uh, because I knew that I drove my friend and drove the other boys and myself in this organization as we all have driven ourselves, many of us have driven ourselves, to be great, to be perfect, to be the best, to be first, to be bold. What I did not do was drive them to be whole, to be free. Did not teach them that the best revenge was freedom. Did not know that for myself in time. I spoke to a junior in college the other day and he said, what advice do you have for us? I said, well, what's on your mind? And he said, well, I think a lot of us are trying to figure out whether we can be all of who we are and still be successful. And he says, so what do you think? I didn't know what I thought, so I thought. And I said, you know, I think the question is not whether you can be all of who you are and still be successful. The question is, if you're not all of who you are, then what good is success? We've been offered this bargain a little too long. And it's costing too many young people's lives. And I'm not talking about just those people that 
commit suicide, though there are so many. I'm talking about those ones who are going to work dead, who are laying next to their partners dead, who are you know standing in the restaurant dead. And if art and literature and uh, all of this stuff is worth anything, it's supposed to be about trying to help us figure out how to live in a real way. Uh, and so, 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 so that's what that's what I mean. As I told somebody, I was doing an interview with Vanity Fair, and they said, "Hey, well, what's next for you? You know, you've, you 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 got to have some new projects you're working on." And I said, uh, "Well, ma'am, my my primary concern is to be well. And if I'm well, then my work will be well. And if I'm not well, then none of that matters. And until that's the standard." for every young person, uh, uh, then we have a lot more work to do. And I'll close our, um, our portion uh, of this chat around There Would Be No Miracles here with a short passage from the book and um, a final sort of provocation here. Uh, and this is around anti-hope. Um, and so, and this journey ended not at hopelessness, only liars and some mass murderers have no hope, but at an anti-hope. This anti-hope seems to be in vogue, mind you, especially amongst those who consider themselves too brilliant or too secular to believe in silly things like unicorns and hope in God. They say that anti-hope is a natural order of things, that the most obvious stance for the man and woman of reason is a stance of cool customer, leaning against the wall of the world while the moral arc of the universe bends down toward, bends down to crush them as it must. And they must convince themselves and others that this anti-hope is not only natural, not only superior, but inevitable. Because otherwise, they must admit that anti-hope is a choice, a choice birthed by fear, by a cautious assessment of risk, a selective reading of the past projected onto the future, a failure of the imagination, and a crippling of the will. They have to make hope the province of fools so that anti-hope is not revealed to be the province of cowards, which it is. Um, and so my, my closing question here for you, uh, Casey, BFF, um, is how did anti-hope in the way that you have outlined it here, shape your making, your undoing, and this process of remaking, of being well. Um, and yeah, that, that's it, yeah. Um, I think so much about Camus' line, you know, I wake up every morning and have to decide whether to shoot myself or have a cup of coffee. Um, that's, that's, so, that's so real, you know. Um, I have a deeper well of sadness uh, after writing this book uh, than I ever knew was possible. So I'm not one of those um, sort of crackerjack optimists that just say, oh, everything's going to be all right. My grandmother just died this summer, and I've never missed some anybody as sharply and consistently as I've missed her. And it, it, I got so violently angry whenever somebody would come up to me after she died and said, oh, she's in a better place. Oh, she's still here with you. Oh, God's plan prevailed. I mean, I just really wanted to just whop them in the mouth. Um, and so what, a few months after that, another close friend of mine died, and she asked on her deathbed that I speak at her funeral. And so I flew to Columbus, and her son was there, and her sister was there. And I got up, and I said, I'm going to tell you what I wish somebody said at my grandmother's funeral. This really sucks. 
you know. Um, what I worried about as I began this book is that we were living at a time where so many of the narratives that were asked of, uh, especially black people, were these uh, sort of, you know, if you weren't depressed and, and a doomsday prophet and you were black, you wasn't getting a book deal in America. I mean, they wanted the darkest, <laughs> you know, most depressing stuff possible. They wanted, you know, uh, you're dead, I'm dead, it's all dead. They wanted it to stop there, you see. Um, my sense was that it had to go beyond that. My sense with that was that that was a bit of, that was immature, uh, one. It was almost like holding Caulfield. You know, I love the catcher in the ride. I said, the problem is that it stopped too soon. You know, it's, it's not interesting until we see Holden get on the other side of all that. It's very immature, but again, Holden is 14. Holden is not a public intellectual. <laughs> He's in high school. Um, I thought it was very irresponsible for people to put work out into the world that stopped at the darkness. Uh, we know life is dark. We didn't need you to write a book to tell us that. What we needed you to write a book was to help us understand the darkness a little more. And as somebody said last night, that great Leonard Cohen line, the cracks, the cracks are how the light get in. What I think if you're going to be engaged in the work of art, of literature, your job is on one hand to bring language to the raw, strange magic of the full human expression, right? So that's why the book in part is so strange. But it also is to help people see the cracks more clearly, but also help people see some of that light. Um, and so, um, so I, I, I didn't want to stop at sort of the hopelessness. I wanted to get us to that side of, um, of, of understanding what hope actually was, which was a choice. And there are many choices that we make. And as I'm trying to intervene in this kind of myth and fantasy uh, of the American dream, I'm not trying to say, hey, you know, the American dream is a fantasy, so let's all go drown ourselves in the Potomac. I'm trying to say the American dream is a fantasy that relies on stories like mine to distract us from the American machine. The machine, this conveyor belt that leads most young people in this country, especially from neighborhoods like mine, from nothing to nowhere. But that is not ending at depression. That's ending at a choice that we can actually redesign this machine and stop depending so much on this empty myth. Yeah. It's a good place to stop. Yeah. hear that go on for uh, forever but um i we have time for three four questions i have two questions uh one i'm curious if you had any input onto the cover art of the book i've been looking at it and i don't know whether you know it was sort of done without your input or whether you could talk about it and the second question I actually just got your book this morning on the Kindle. Sorry if that's wrong. And so I'm just a little bit into it. <laughs> wrong for who? <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm just a little bit into it, so I don't know your, your whole story. But I'm wondering if you would have different things, think that you would have had different views had you gone to a historically black college as opposed to a place like Yale. Uh, I want to. I'll start with the first question. 
Uh, I had very little input on the cover art. Um, uh, I threw very big tantrums about the cover art that were, but I did make one important change, and it's incredible art. I was very wrong about my tantrums. Writers are very good, often, sometimes, every now and then, at writing books. They're not particularly great at designing covers. But one thing I did want, and this matters a great deal, is that I, there was a, it, was all, it was a solid white. The lines were solid white. And I asked them just to soften it a little bit. You know, this is really, for me, a healing exercise. And as much of the uh, as the book is kind of a kind of a, a bomb, it hopefully is a bomb, uh, and I thought a little softness of the of the white would help. But I mean, who am I? Um, the second question of the HBCU, Matthew graduated from Morehouse, um, so to avoid uh, a prolonged altercation, I'll just say I don't know. <laughs> I really did train to be a politician, I'm telling you. <laughs> Thanks for the, the reading and the discussion. It was, uh, it was really, very, very engaging. Uh, my question is, uh, just listening to you, uh, I'm curious how you think about uh, the project of understanding one's life and writing about it with respect to form and, by extension, genre. And I specifically ask that because throughout the discussion, there's this intimacy with which you talk about both of those things almost as if it's a lens through which, you know, you've thought about your own experience. Uh, and it's, it's, it's striking because often one thinks of novels that way. Now, regardless of how one thinks about the mixture between novels and memoir and all of those things, uh, you know, this to me felt substantively different than many discussions in that respect with the formal aspect. So you talk about Whitman and Emerson and sort of the generalization of the structures they wrote around. And then you talked about uh, cracking up, which obviously invokes Scott Fitzgerald and, you know, Baldwin and Horatio Alger and this mixture between these things. I'm just curious how you think about um, a mediated life in a certain way and how do you tell a story through kind of those antecedent structures? Yeah. Bossett reads like, what, 30 books a day or something? I mean, dang. I didn't mean to be a ringer, but yes, Casey and I know each other. No, 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 it's great. No, it's great. It's great. It's your own people who betray you first. I, I will, I will two, say this is, my, two, this is my first exposure to, to Casey as a writer. So this has actually been somewhat um, uh, strange, to be quite honest. Not that I didn't, I just, this is different. Yeah. So this is why I partly asked yeah, that. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Um, this was the first time I was ever allowed, I ever felt that I could be myself without consequence. You know, one of the muscles you build as an orphan, basically, is kind of the muscle of a whore. You, you figure out how to quickly do whatever it is you feel somebody wants you to do so you can get what you need, maybe a place to sleep for the night, maybe some food. Um, uh, and that really paid off in a lot of ways for me for a very long time. It just so happened to be a dead end. And this book was the very first time that I never felt at risk that me being myself would cause dire consequences. But it took a, 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 a little turn. Early on, I sent some early chapters to a, a close friend of mine who's a very respected writer. And he wrote back and he said, well, when can you hop on the phone? which is always a bad sign. So we hopped on the phone and he said, hey man, you've been hired to write an autobiography. It's a straightforward exercise. It's grounded in the facts of your life. 
It's got a beginning, middle, and end. There's a great tradition, by the way, of autobiography in this country. <laughs> African-American autobiography. People on the margins of society who write to assert that they existed. Go out and buy some of those books. <laughs> you know, read Frederick Douglass. I mean, read my, I Know Why the Cage Bird And maybe you differ a little bit from that, but this is, you're going in the wrong direction, man. Don't even send in this to your editor, I mean, really. Um, and I was so glad for my friend's intervention because it uh, helped me decide very early on that I wasn't going to write that kind of book. The specific answer is that I think often the form comes from reaction to forms you don't want, I think, to some degree. Um, I didn't need to write a book that, to know that I existed. I mean, that just struck me as kind of strange. And, you know, even though I had grown up and lived, grown a you know, poor, black, queer, damn near orphan, I had never lived on the margins of anything. I had been in the very molten core of my own existence. I think about what Kendrick Lamar said on Section 80. He said, I'm not on the outside looking in. I'm not on the inside looking out. I'm in the dead fucking center looking around. <laughs> that was the perspective I wanted you to feel in this book. I want you to feel. That's why I tell people all the time. Sometimes people say, it's so hard to explain your book. It does all these things. How do you explain? I say, well, what's great about it is that you don't have to explain it. You just have to read it. <laughs> and if you almost take the plug of your eyes and mind and plug it in on page one, the book will do the rest. It'll take you to the end, I promise you. But I wanted to put you right in the dead center of my consciousness so that it makes perfect sense that we go from losing one's virginity to Juneteenth to uh, a conversation with the Black Panthers to the Stonewall riots to the gay clubs in New York to the financial crisis on Wall Street to a dream to a Stasi prison in Berlin where I was to George Bush's dinner to, you know uh, to a plant you see um, to roaches there's two paragraphs about cockroaches I mean you know I mean hell if Knausgaard could get six chapters of drip, six volumes of drivel out of just, you know, <laughs> random thoughts. I thought maybe I could get one. But, um, yeah, I think uh, this is, I thought that the formal, in, the formal transgression was also a political transgression. No slave needed to read the narrative of Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was doing a very important work, but that work was to show the people who had the power that slavery was evil and to convince more people to be abolitionists. I wouldn't be here today if he hadn't written that book. But I don't think Frederick Douglass took all those ass kickings so that I, 160 years later, was writing the same book he wrote. Eric. Casey. Good to see you. Eric is responsible well. for all of your favorite shows on the ESPN. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know how curious you are. I know um, how much you reach out to see life through different prisms. If you had written, if somebody had sat down and said, we would like to offer you this book contract four years ago, might have been a slightly different book than the one that you wrote. As you grew, as you wrote the book, were there times where you looked back 
at the chapters you had written and said, mm, I'm not sure I believe that anymore. I'm now looking at life through a slightly different lens based off of something I've read, conversations I've had, things I've observed. Yeah, first of all, I'll start there. Yes. Um, you laugh. You, you were waiting for something more profound. Huh? Um, yeah, actually. You know, people criticize me sometimes. They say, oh, there's no alternative. You, you're not offering any solutions. I say, well, first of all, I'm not running in the midterms. What are you talking about? <laughs> but aside from that, there are very serious. I have a whole nine-page uh, document of alternatives uh, that come directly out of this book. Maybe I'll publish them if I fall on hard times. Um, this relationship with my friend that I write about and the thing that's at the core of sort of my meditation and remembrance of him is a situation that happened when we were in college um, that felt to him like a betrayal. He had been betrayed by everybody in his life. Uh, he had been sort of, you know, homeless as a kid, had taken care of his little brother. And part of the reason he came to Yale was that his guardian at the time uh, uh, told him, well, you'll be all right because Casey's going to look after you. Uh, it's the danger of college. You know, it's a 19-year-old who's responsible, you know. Um, and he trusted me more than anybody else, and I probably had more of a sort of say in how he moved through college than anybody else. And then this thing happened and we got into sort of a disagreement and, and his direct response to a friend of ours because he stopped speaking to me was, um, Casey was supposed to be my brother. He treated me like I didn't mean shit to him. Uh, and I had always interpreted that as, uh, as my friend Stop speaking to me. And I wrote in the book, in the chap, this was like final copy. Uh, it was as if he uh, let a river run between us and walked away from the banks of the other side. And that was in the, that might have almost been in the galley, I think. And my editor wrote, wrote to me and she said, you know, I'd love a little more of y'all's relationship. And my initial response was, I don't have any more. I mean, I put it all in the book, you know, all that I had. And I thought and I thought for a couple of days. And then I remembered this strange, hazy memory from three or four months after our altercation. And it was at night and we had kind of run into each other on the street. And he had a friend with him who was also my friend. And before they reached me, he stood back. And the friend came up and he just stood there. And at the time, I was like, this is stupid. Like, you know, he's being so ornery about this. But what I realized is that he was waiting for me to try to reconcile. And so what the chapter actually ended up being was, it says he, let, he stood on the banks, he let a river run through us, run between us, and walked away from the other side. And then I said, or did he stand there waiting to see if I would swim across? You know? Um, and so when I say I don't know, and there's so much of a mystery that so that runs through so much of the book, it's, I, my friend is gone. I can't answer that question. But it's as reasonable to me. Again, six months after I thought I had a final draft, 
that it wasn't what I initially thought that he had walked away from the other side, but that he was waiting to see if I would make an effort. And I realized in that revision that I had never actually swum across a river for anybody. So I tried to start doing that. That's why I live in Los Angeles. It's gotten me a lot of trouble so far. <laughs> Trust me, very living better is very expensive. Thank you. And I think we have time for this one more question cool. here. Slide over here. Sorry. Hey, Casey, How you good doing? to see you, man. You. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about this moment in your life when you decided to write this book, 2016? It's um, it's powerful, me powerful for me to sit in the audience hearing you talk about this turning point in your life. Because I think, as you said, for many many of us in our generation, that was really a moment where things changed. For me, it meant a career change. There was a health crisis. There was this step that, um, that required taking back and reconceptualizing sort of how we wanted to engage with the world, how we wanted to spend time with the people that we love and what we want to dedicate ourselves to. I'm curious to hear more not only about that moment in your life, but also sort of more of these conversations that you've had with, with people about... Um, um, about this American machine that I'm looking forward to reading more about here, but about this this process through which it's 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 causing so many people to to crack up from such a diverse array of, of backgrounds and, and upbringings and the rest. It seems to be having this very, uh, in some ways, uniform effect uh, despite all of those 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 deep seated differences. I don't want to be too general about it. So I'll talk perhaps about process. Um, and it kind of goes to your question of what was going on in my life. Uh, a woman wrote to me and she said, um, you know, I'm a upper middle class, 61-year-old white woman from Michigan. I finished your book. There's so much I can't relate to, obviously. But I can relate to a horrific childhood. And I can relate to a horrific childhood that I ignored until I was 50 and wound up in the hospital. Um, what I found, what I was forced to find, is that all the stuff you run from comes running after you. And, um, but that if you face it, you can heal from it. It's the same thing for a life as it is for a country. So when people ask me, well, where do we go from here? I always tell them, well, where is here? I ask them, where is here? There isn't a GPS in the world that can that I know of. I don't read, what is it, Indigadget? Uh, there isn't a GPS in the world that can guide you to a destination without knowing first your current location. Now, it's damn hard work to figure out where you are and how you got there. It was There were early drafts of chapters about my mother, for example, that were just, I hate you, I hate you. It was like Bart Simpson on the board. I hate you, I hate you, go to hell, die, die. You know, that has no human or literary value. 
But if I kept revising, if I kept trying to get down to the bottom of it, I could try. I could then understand one what happened to me, but I could also come to, on the other side and see my mother. And I could see her for a human being, not just my employee. I could see that she was happened to before she happened to me. Uh, that was damn hard work, damn painful work, but I couldn't actually understand and heal from it if I didn't see that. And now we can go somewhere different. Same thing for the country. What I try to do in this book and why that stuff, I'm almost like Forrest Gump. You know, I just happen to be a lot of places. The reason that the Wall Street chapter is important from 2008 is not because I just want to prove to you I got this job, but that I thought it was something important to understand. I was working at the Center for American Progress here in D.C. in the first year of the first couple years of the Obama administration. You know, I was sitting with uh, 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 Black Panther who went to prison for murdering Alex Rackley. You know, I was sitting at George Bush's dinner. You know, I'm trying to bring to bear you know, um, uh, some, as, as much as I can, not, again, not sort of propaganda, sort of blowhard stuff, but real receipts of how we got here. I was at CPAC in 2010, in the early years of the Obama administration, I mean, I mean in the early years of the Tea Party, and all the stuff that people were shocked about in 2016, it was all at CPAC in 2010. I put it in the book. I'm trying to see if we understand how we got here, if we understand where we are, then we can put in our GPS. Hey, mister, I want to go to a country that is fair and is equal and is not horrible for the poor and is not dangerous for women and for poor people and people of color and queer people and immigrants, you see. Uh, but we can't. You know, my therapist call it spiritual bypass. You know, it's like meditating without, you know, actually knowing what you're doing. It's like you're just breathing for 10 minutes is not meditating, <laughs> you know. And some of what we're trying to do with this sort of political reckoning that we're dealing with, I think, is the equivalent of breathing for 10 minutes without actually knowing anything about meditation. It's a spiritual bypass. We got to go deeper than we're actually going. Um, and so I hope this book if nothing else, uh, can at the personal level and also at the political level say, hey, there actually, that's why it has to be so specific, there actually are very specific things that lead to the mutilation that young people experience on college campuses at the hands of their educators. And there also is very specific um, a trail. There is a breadcrumb trail that we can trace, and I try to put that in this book. Yeah. But I wouldn't have done it if I didn't have to do it to stay alive, I think, yeah. Give another round of applause. This has been amazing. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.